Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Physician and Patient, written by Worthington Hooker and published in 1849. It's amazing to think how far our understanding of medicine has come over the course of human history. My name is Teddy, and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. As always, a huge thank you to all existing patrons and sponsors, and everyone who took the time to send a message or leave a review. A huge thank you also to all Spotify listeners who answered the Q&A. Every response helps support the podcast. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. I understand that not everyone can afford a monthly contribution. There is, however, a small and very helpful favour that you can provide. Please share the podcast with a friend, and if possible, kindly leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. You can always say hello to me at boytosleep.com or on Instagram and Twitter. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Physician and Patient by Worthington Hooker Physician and Patient or A Practical View of the mutual duties, relation and interests of the medical profession and the community by Worthington Hooker, M.D. Preface A few words may be proper in explanation of the objects for which this book was written. The forms which quackery assumes are endless but the material out of which they are evolved is essentially the same in all ages and in all countries. There are certain medical errors which are common to man everywhere and in every condition. It is these which constitute the material of quackery, whether it appear among the savage or the civilised the rude or the refined, the illiterate or the learned. One object of this book 
is to develop these fundamental errors and to show the modus operandi by which the genius of imposture has produced from them the fantastic and ever-changing shapes of empiricism. I notice particularly some of the specific forms of quackery which are now prevalent, not because they differ essentially from those which have preceded them, but because they have a present interest to the reader. One of the objects at which I aim is to expose to the public the fallacy of those sources of evidence upon which they rely in estimating the comparative merits of physicians and to show them what tests they have at command which will not prove fallacious. The proper use of these tests would save the public from mistaking as they now often do the plausible pretensions of the superficial practitioner and the charlatan for the evidences of real skill and wisdom. Another object will be to present the claims of the medical profession to the respect and the confidence of the community. As it is now, the profession stands in a somewhat false position before the public. The grounds upon which we ask their regard and trust are not generally understood. The confidence which is reposed in us is not as intelligent as it should be. It is unsettled and capricious. It is overweening at one time and it is entirely withheld at another, and for the most frivolous reasons, the inconsistencies of even the well-formed on this subject are surprising. Many who on some occasions confide implicitly in nothing but educated science are found at other times submitting themselves and their families to the haphazard administrations of empiricism. But while I attempt to establish the claims of the medical profession to the confidence of the people, and to defend it against the aspersions which are unjustly cast upon it, I endeavour to exhibit faithfully the abuses which exist in the profession itself, the quackery which is practiced among medical men is a much greater evil than which is abroad in the community. I attack it, therefore, with an unsparing hand. In doing so, I expose many of the tricks and maneuvers which are employed by those physicians. When the rules of an honourable professional relation shall come to be properly understood and appreciated by the public, one of the great sources of the success of quackery will be removed. In exposing the errors and faults of the medical profession and of the public, while I have unflinchingly aimed at the truth, I have endeavoured to avoid a censorious spirit, 
and to give to human frailty all the tolerance that can properly be demanded. I trust the reader will therefore find that, in the language of my motto, there are no wasps, there are no hornets here, that I have escaped all error myself, I do not claim. Some points may too strongly be stated, and some provisionary and modifying considerations may be omitted. I ask of the reader a reasonable indulgence, but none which shall be inconsistent with an honest and candid criticism. In the practice of medicine, there are some points upon which there should be a common understanding between the physician and the friends and attendants of the sick. From the want of such an understanding, the purposes and plans of the practitioner are often interfered with and sometimes are effectually thwarted. A considerable portion, therefore, of this work is devoted to an elucidation of the points referred to. In the chapter on the uncertainty of medicine, and in other places also, I point out the difficulties which are encountered in the study and practice of medicine. These difficulties demand of the physician the exercise of higher and more cultivated powers than are needed for the successful prosecution of most other studies and pursuits. I therefore make it a principal object to urge, by every consideration, the importance of a well-educated medical profession. Every man has a personal interest in maintaining the barriers by which the organisations of the profession undertake to protect the community from the evils which they would suffer from ignorance and imposture if these barriers were destroyed. It is especially for the advantage of the people and not as is commonly supposed of physicians that there should be a proper standard of medical education. My first chapter on the uncertainty of medicine may perhaps be considered by some as too strictly professional for the common reader. I ask for it, however, a careful perusal. I have endeavoured to strip the subject of all the technicalities and a full understanding of the views there presented is necessary to a proper appreciation of the considerations contained in some of the succeeding chapters. I write in part for the profession and in part for the community at large. I ask both to look candidly at the views which I present of their mutual duties, relations and interests. A reform is needed in the opinions and practices both of physicians and of the people in regard to the medical subjects. This reform is fairly begun in the profession 
and there may be seen, even amid all the present diversified and flaunting displays of quackery, some indications of its commencement in the community. The volume which I now offer to the public is a humble effort to promote this reform. Chapter 1. Uncertainty of Medicine The uncertainty of medicine is a common topic in all circles, and yet it is one which is very generally misunderstood. Even by the intelligent and reflecting in the community, they mistake as to the nature of this uncertainty, its causes, its practical influence in the treatment of disease, the means which should be resorted to in order to diminish it, and the best methods of guarding against the errors into which it is liable to lead us. These errors are, I may remark, so numerous and so common, and interfere so constantly with the usefulness of the physician among high and low, educated and uneducated, almost equally that the subject is one of vast practical importance. It is important not only to physicians, but to the people, and to the people especially, for they are the sufferers from the multiform and often fatal injuries which these errors engender. It will be profitable then to examine the different points to which I have alluded, so that it may be seen how far the science of medicine merits confidence and by what tests an intelligent and thinking man may distinguish between that which rests upon good and substantial evidence, and that which is uncertain and delusive. This is a distinction which often fails to be made, as the physician has occasion every day to lament, by the shrewd and learned as well as the ignorant and unwary, and the deductions of a rational and careful experience are continually confounded with the false assumptions and plausible fallacies of the mere pretender and the fanciful vagaries of the enthusiast. So far as my remarks will enable the reader to make the distinction to which I have referred, just so far will my object be accomplished. When the chemist mixes substances together, the composition of which he knows, he arrives at results which may be strictly denominated certain and invariable if he be not able to do this at once, he can do so ultimately by a series of experiments, varied to test each doubtful point. The results which he thus obtains are so exact that they can be expressed by numbers and definite proportions. The physician can imitate the chemist, it is true, 
in the application of tests in the investigation of disease, but it is necessarily a very humble and distant imitation, and no approach to the certainty and definiteness of chemical analysis and synthesis can be expected in medical practice. When the chemist mixes substances together, he knows what they are, and when he sees their effect upon each other, he has a right to expect the same effect to follow, with absolute certainty, whenever he shall make the same mixture again. But the physician cannot infer from the effect of a remedy in one case, that the same result will certainly occur in another case, which appears to be precisely similar. For he cannot know enough of the circumstances of the two cases, to determine beyond a doubt that they are exactly alike. There are often causes utterly undiscoverable by human wisdom, which essentially modify the effects of remedies. If you suppose that the chemist knows the nature of only a part of the substances which he puts into his retort, that the retort itself is made of materials which will act upon these substances and be acted upon by them, and that in the midst of his experiment, some other substance is introduced accidentally or by stealth, producing an entire change in the process, you will then make the chemist to resemble the physician in the uncertainty of his results. He would then be obliged, as the physician is, to go through with a great many observations to establish any one fact, and instead of making, as he now does, a well-defined line of separation between what is known and what is not known, he would, like the physician, have a wide middle ground of probability and supposition. Every individual may, strictly speaking, be said to be peculiar to some extent, and there is much force in the popular idea of the benefit resulting a physician's being acquainted with his patient's constitution. But besides these common differences, some have very great peculiarities. A few examples will be sufficient. There are some persons in whom the odour of roses will produce asthma, Ipecac has the same effect in some individuals. Some persons are uniformly made sick by eating strawberries, even in small amount. Cases are constantly met with by physicians in which some medicines have a peculiar effect. The various effects produced by opium in different individuals furnish many examples. I call to mind a patient who, through a labouring man of considerable power of endurance, is extremely prostrated by vomiting by whatever agent it is produced. 
I once gave him an emetic without knowing this peculiarity. He was so much prostrated that I supposed that the apothecary had made a mistake and that he had taken an overdose. But a short time after, I witnessed in him the same effect induced by undigested food, and this revealed the idiosyncrasy in his case. When idiosyncrasies are known, they can be calculated upon, but they are not always known. We cannot be aware of them when they respect the action of remedies, which the patient had never taken. And in relation to remedies which produce no marked and obvious effect, peculiar susceptibilities may exist without being readily ascertained. If there be an idiosyncrasy in regard to such a medicine as an emetic or an opiate, it is easily discovered. But if it exists in regard to a remedy that acts silently and slowly, it may not show itself clearly. The only evidence that we have of its existence may be the fact that the medicine after a while is observed to fail in producing the effects which we ordinarily expect from it in such cases. And it may be very doubtful whether this failure is to be attributed to this cause or to some other. Let us recur once more to our illustration from chemistry. If the retorts used by the chemist, which I have supposed to carry out the analogy, to be composed of materials which would act upon their contents, were not all made exactly alike, but varied a little always in their composition, and sometimes considerably, and that too without the variation, always being appreciable. This fact would obviously still further complicate his experiments, and render them uncertain in their results. So also the peculiarities in the different human systems, which are the physician's retorts into which he introduces his agents, must have the same effect upon his investigations. I have now finished the consideration of the various causes of uncertainty in medical science if I have succeeded at all in making them to be properly appreciated, the reader will agree with me that I say that there is no science that requires higher talents for its successful investigation and none that is so liable to wrong influences and conclusions. If the student of it be a careless and credulous observer, Notwithstanding this liability, imperatively demanding caution on the part of the physician, there has been much of careless observation in this science, and the recorded experience of the medical profession is therefore encumbered with a mass of errors. In order to get rid of these errors, 
and to establish the proper distinctions between the certain and the uncertain, between the true and the probable, while the merely plausible shall be entirely rejected. A judicious sifting and testing of evidence must be resorted to, credulity and scepticism both being equally avoided. The uncertainty of medicine is often most unjustly made to give a free license to blind experimenting. It should the rather stimulate to the most careful and searching observation of all the doubtful points of the case in hand, so that whatever of experimenting may be necessary shall be as rational and intelligent as possible. This leads me to remark that the views which we have taken of the uncertainty of medicine show us in what real skill in the practice of the medical art consists. It consists in appreciating the actual state of the patient in all respects, and then applying such remedies and in such quantities and forms as will do the greatest probable amount of good. This is apparently a very simple proposition, but if we consider it in all its bearings, we shall find the more is included in it than at first sight appears. I will therefore dwell on some of these points in the order in which they are suggested to my mind. Appreciating the true condition of the patient does not consist merely in finding out the seat, the nature and the amount of the disease. This is exceedingly important, it is true, but it is by no means all of the case. Sometimes it is but a very partial view of it. For example, Suppose that the patient has an inflammation of some organ, and to make the case stronger, let it be a chronic inflammation. In chronic diseases, as you have seen, there are extensive results from sympathy and from the action of concurrent causes in different parts of the system. The physician, in investigating such a case in order to proportion his curative measures with any accuracy, to the ends to be accomplished, must look beyond the main disease and take into view the whole case, the state of the different organs and the state of the system as the congeries of organs a disregard of this important point is very common and leads to many errors in practice. Let us look at a few of them. Many physicians are disposed to consider the morbid state of the system in almost every case as arising from disease in some particular organ. They therefore, in examining the symptoms, search for this disease, and when they think they have found it, they refer to this either directly or indirectly, all the phenomena which the case presents. 
In their treatment of the case, therefore, they direct their remedial means principally to the local disease. They lose sight of the fact that often there are several organs simultaneously affected, and the organ which seems to be most diseased is sometimes found to be less so than some other organ, which exhibited no marked signs of its morbid state. They forget, too, another important fact, that the disease of an organ is often a mere result of a general bad condition of the system. An undue attachment to certain modes of investigation to the exclusion of others is also frequently a source of error. I mention as an example a too implicit and exclusive reliance upon what are called the physical signs of disease. Percussion and oscillation are valuable sources of evidence, but when they are relied upon to the exclusion of other sources, as is often the case, they lead to error. Some who have attained to a high degree of skill in the use of the stethoscope have on this account sometimes adopted very erroneous conclusions which might have been avoided by a careful examination of all the sources of evidence in the case. Having pointed out some of the errors produced by narrow and exclusive views in the investigation of the symptoms of disease, let us now attend to some of the errors which result from this cause in the application of remedies. A remedy may be applicable to a disease which the physician finds developed in a given case, but there may be some condition of some organ which may render it wholly inapplicable to that case. For example, in a case of inflammation of the lungs, the state of the stomach may be such as utterly to forbid the use of some remedies, which would otherwise be proper. If they be administered in spite of this circumstance, they may perhaps produce a beneficial effect upon the inflammation, and yet may do a great injury to the patient, perhaps even a fatal one by their direct effect upon the diseased stomach. Errors of this kind do often occur in the practice of those who observe inaccurately, or who have fallen into a sort of routine or practice from disclination to mental effort. The general condition of the patient sometimes fails to be appreciated by the practitioner. He may be pursuing a course which would be admirably adapted to cure the same disease in a more vigorous patient, and yet in the case in at hand in may be ruinous. Though it may relieve and even cure the disease, it yet may destroy the patient. The judicious physician in some cases feels obliged to let morbid processes go on, 
because the violence which must necessarily be done to the debilitated system by the attempt to arrest them would put the patient's life in greater jeopardy than it would to let them have their course. Questions frequently arise on this point which tax the physician's skill and judgment to the utmost even when it is proper to moderate the activity of a disease process. It is often a very delicate point to determine just how far this can be done without doing harm to the patient. Fever is often moderated by means that irritate the system or prostrate its powers to such an extent that bad results, sometimes fatal ones, occur when, if these means had been used less largely, or perhaps even they had not been used at all, a recovery might have taken place. Sometimes fearful issues depend upon the decision of the physician. For instance, here is a case which has been going on for some time without giving much occasion for anxiety but all at once it assumes a new aspect. A new set of formidable symptoms have come on, requiring an entire change in the treatment. A variety of perplexing questions now arise in the midst of the physician, such as these. If the attempt to be made to remove the new symptoms... How much reason is there to fear that attempt will so affect the debilitated patient as to destroy life? Severe as the symptoms are, is there a probability that, if a mild course be pursued, the patient may weather the storm? Will he certainly die if the symptoms are left to go on without any attempt to arrest them? And if so, what measures will probably arrest them with the least amount of risk to the patient's life? Such are some of the momentous questions which press upon the physician's mind, and though he would like time to give them a patient examination, he cannot have it. For there is necessity for immediate decision and action, The reader can plainly see that in order to decide such questions under such circumstances properly, great comprehensiveness and concentration of thought and a cool and clear judgment are requisite, and that a mind of narrow views and loose habits of observation and reasoning must often fail to come a right decision of them And that concludes tonight's readings. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.